press. It's pretty lofty stuff. The risks you take won't just be financial. Taking the initiative and declaring to the world, what I have to offer is worth paying for, takes guts. There's an undeniable element of vulnerability that goes along with being an entrepreneur. This is especially true for the introvert. Our internal world is rich and active, and bringing what's happening internally into the external world is a tremendous act of courage. It helps to be passionate about what you're doing and to have a clear sense of purpose. It's also important to acknowledge yourself for the risk you're taking by stepping into the spotlight. Your introvert strengths not only support you when you have deep internal work to do, but guide you through challenging business development activities that call on your inner extrovert energy. Together, your internal and external work bring your values and purpose to life. I Gotta Be Me Anne Morrow Lindbergh says, The most exhausting thing in life is being insincere. Authenticity is a word that tends to be overused, but for a reason. It reflects a way of being that encompasses many concepts at once. Genuine, trustworthy, reliable. According to the Collins English Dictionary, it derives from the late Latin word authenticus, coming from the author. From Greek authentikos, from authentis, one who acts independently, from auto plus hentis, a doer. For the introvert entrepreneur, there is much to love in the word authenticity. Living in authenticity means honoring your truth, taking action, coming from your inner wisdom, being who you are 100%. This is why the expression, fake it till you make it, makes me bristle. I've said those words myself without really thinking about what they imply. We think that when we're about to break new ground, we have to screw up our courage and put on a brave face. We buy into the saying, never let them see you sweat. We believe that the antidote to our fear is to fake it. We tell ourselves that we're excited, happy, optimistic, and ready. And then we jump. We're taught that if you actually don't feel happy, fake it. Smile, and you'll trick your brain into believing you're happy. I've tried it, and it works for a little while. For some, it might be just the answer. But at least one study contradicts that conventional wisdom. Scientists followed bus drivers over a period of time and compared the moods of those who engaged in surface acting, which is forcing a smile even when unhappy, and deep acting, which is conjuring up happiness from positive thoughts or memories. What they found was that when forcing a smile, the subject's moods deteriorated and they tended to withdraw from work. Trying to suppress negative thoughts, it turns out, may have made those thoughts even more persistent. Conversely, when a subject tapped into positive memories, mood and productivity improved. When we fake it, we're not acknowledging or honoring our truth. When we fake it, we exhaust ourselves and drain precious energy that could be spent taking our message out into the world. So what's the alternative? First, intentionally acknowledge that the whole situation feels fake, disingenuous, draining, it's important not to negate the feelings that you're experiencing. If you ignore them or shove them aside, they'll come back to fight another day. Fears and doubts only grow bigger in the dark. Second, we say and, not but, and we do what the bus drivers did. We choose to deep act. We tap into what's already inside us, what's authentic, to pull us through. This can take the form of feeling gratitude for the adventure or for learning something new. It can be curiosity, shifting from, I don't know what's going to happen, to, I wonder what will happen, and knowing that whatever happens, you can handle it. You can conjure up memories of a big accomplishment, images of loved ones, or your biggest cheerleaders. Then, when we put on our game face, we are doing so from a place of authenticity. We've started by being transparent, saying, this stinks and move to changing our attitude and story, drawing from people, places, and things that have heart and meaning for us. Faking it is tiring for everyone, especially the introvert. Our work is taxing enough without the added stress of putting on a mask every time we go out. We sometimes think that we have to fake extroversion in order to fit in. 
In reality, introverts have an extroverted side that we can summon forth when we want. Being social and outgoing, relative to our introversion, not to someone else's extroversion, doesn't have to be fake. So the next time you think to yourself, well, I gotta fake it till I make it, stop, reflect. What's the positive energy within you that's waiting to come to the surface and help you through? Can you invite your natural extroversion, the part that is eager to share your passion for your business with others, out to play? Faking is a waste of energy, and our energy is one of our most valuable assets. Spend it wisely. Who do you think you are? Now that we've closely examined truth, values, purpose, and authenticity, there's at least one more brick to lay in the foundation of your business, authority. It comes up in conversations about identity, especially with introverts. We frequently feel more confident when our authority lies in someone or something else. For instance, if you work for a large or prestigious company, or you're marketing a product or service that has brand recognition, you feel empowered by its credibility. You are always one step removed from whatever it is that people are buying. If someone says no, you know they aren't saying no to you personally. You may even have a more relaxed sense of responsibility when it comes to what people think of the business. In theatrical terms, you are a member of the chorus, and you are told what to say, what to wear, and when to show up. Then you do the best you can with what you've been given. This all changes once we step out of the chorus and into the spotlight. We're exposed, and there's no one else to either credit or blame. A coaching colleague said to me, I wish I had something other than just me to offer them. She was saying that she wanted her authority to be attached to something else, a model, framework, or tool whose reputation preceded her. That's a totally natural desire, especially when you consider that earlier we defined entrepreneurial risk in terms of vulnerability. You can apply this insecurity to almost any endeavor. Why become a massage therapist when others are trained to do it better than me? Why coach or consult when there are others certified in the same methods I am? Why be a photographer when I know I'm no Ansel Adams or Annie Leibovitz? Why be an accountant or lawyer when it feels like the marketplace has more than it needs? The answer is that no one else can do it like you do. If you feel called to make a contribution in the world through your business, it's because there's a gap that only you can fill. There are people out there whom only you can serve. Your authority lies in your responsibility to make your vision come to life. I've also found that authority comes more easily when I release attachment to being right, being the best, or having everything turn out a certain way. That might seem counterintuitive. We usually think we will feel more confidence and authority if we know exactly where we're going and we're 100% determined to get there at all costs. Placing our authority in certainty is greatly increasing our risk in an already risky venture. There's much more to lose if we're emotionally attached to a particular result. When you release attachment, you allow yourself to be more open to opportunities. You are better able to tap into your introvert's strengths of listening, reflection, and curiosity to explore beyond the norm. Introverts prefer going deep rather than wide, focused rather than scattered. If you combine that depth with openness, you are setting a bigger stage for yourself, maybe even all the world. Releasing attachment has a magical side effect. Our fear of failure diminishes. Even the word failure starts to take on new meaning and release its power over us. As Joseph Campbell says, we must be willing to let go of the life we have planned so as to have the life that is waiting for us. Reframing risk. We're going to wrap up this chapter by revisiting the word risk because it's a close cousin of failure and being able to embrace both is key to your success. Usually when we hear the word risk, we think of it as something to avoid. But consider the definition of entrepreneur on dictionary.com. A person who organizes or manages any enterprise, usually with considerable initiative and risk. You are expected to take risks. In other words, to make mistakes, to fail. It's part of the job description. Inventor and introvert Thomas Edison offered this wisdom. Of the 200 light bulbs that didn't work, every failure told me something I was able to incorporate into the next attempt. 
Edison probably came to that conclusion after a lot of teeth gnashing and frustration, especially in the beginning. Lucky for us, his realization can save us a lot of time and energy. He basically grants us permission to fail. In fact, he's reminding us that it's highly probable that what we're trying won't work out at all. It may be beneficial to reframe risk as research. It's information gathering. It's trying something out and knowing that you'll learn something from it that will be useful the next time. Whatever it is that you're doing, it's not an end in itself. It's one step on the journey. To fully appreciate this, we have to approach our risks with a beginner's mind. Here's how I learned my biggest lesson in risk failure and the beginner's mind. When I decided to enroll in a coach training program, it took a while for a certain reality to fully sink in. I was going back to school. While it wasn't school in the traditional sense, it pushed the same buttons. The biggest button, lit up and flashing wildly, was the good student button. It was within this context that I was introduced to the concept of a beginner's mind. Your beginner's mind approaches each experience with an open mind, free of assumptions about what you should know, what you don't know, what you're good at, and what you're challenged by. It releases judgment about what's good or bad, right or wrong, success or failure. It lets go of the labels, even the label of introvert, if that's been a source of negativity or feelings of less than, and embraces what shows up. For me, the power of adopting a beginner's mind was obvious in each of the three-day classroom sessions I had during the 18 months of training. The first classroom day, my coaching would be relaxed and in the moment. I didn't know what I was doing, so instead of feeling anxiety, I felt more curiosity and willingness to take risks. With each subsequent day, as my mind was filled with experiences, self-judgment, and new information, I found myself coaching more from my head and less from my heart. We have the power to reframe risk into something that works for us, not against us. We entrepreneurs have to have a fairly high tolerance for risk. It's not a question of if we will take risks, but when. If we don't take risks, we'll stagnate. We'll actually lose confidence. We won't learn how to pick ourselves back up when we inevitably fall. But here's the good news. When we take risks, we learn that we don't have to have all of the answers or get it perfect. We have the choice at any moment to come from a beginner's mind, live from our core values, and see ourselves and our businesses with open eyes, Open Minds, Open Hearts. Introvert Entrepreneur Focus Brad Feld, author, blogger, and venture capitalist at Foundry Group. Question. Most entrepreneurs begin their journey being driven by something that's important to them, that they deeply believe in. It's easy to lose our way, though, as the business grows and pressure mounts. Why is building a business that's in alignment with our values important, especially for introverts? Answer. It's something I see within the technology industry, entrepreneurship, and venture capital all the time. People create a persona for themselves and for their companies, and then their actions don't match it. So you have this huge disconnect between their words and action. That's not just toxic for the business or for what you're trying to accomplish. It's also toxic for individuals. There's the dissonance of trying to portray a certain way of being and then having your way of actually being be inconsistent with that over a long period of time. It is emotionally incredibly hard. It creates lots of broken relationships and internal inconsistencies that are exhausting. Question. Entrepreneurship requires a lot of trial and error, often in a very public arena. How would you advise introverts to handle that particular kind of stress in a healthy way? Answer. There are going to be situations as an introvert where you find yourself working on something or trying something publicly that you're not very good at. I don't care whether it's a business or sports or music or whatever. It will be uncomfortable. It will be draining. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't exercise those muscles. You just recognize that exercising those muscles is exhausting. And when you use up your energy, you have to recharge, turn around, and go through your energy again. Question. What beliefs do you hold most dear that influence your perspective on life and business? Answer. I believe in the wonderful line, life is a process of continual oxidation. 
We're always in this process of dying. So you have this finite experience where really you're kind of always working towards the end. Another belief is we're all just a bag of chemicals. Each person's a different bag of chemicals. And do you want to end your life a bag of chemicals or a bag of broken glass? Every time someone hugs you, they get cut because of how sharp and miserable you are. Or do you want to be recognized that you're a bag of chemicals and let that continue to evolve? So for me, experiencing the journey, the good and the bad, knowing that it has finality at the end, is so much more important than the individual things that I accomplish along the way. Chapter 4. You Must Be Present to Win. Networking for the Introvert Entrepreneur This chapter is the longest in the audiobook, and with good reason. First, it's an absolutely essential activity. Second, whenever I've asked introverts what they find most challenging about being in business for themselves, they inevitably mention networking, usually in the same breath as sales activities. Here's what people have shared with me over the years. I don't like walking into a noisy, crowded room where I don't know anyone. Small talk is so challenging. I always feel like I go on and on, and the other person is just looking around the room, trying to escape. I feel pressure to sell when I go to a networking event. Otherwise, why go? Networking wears me out, especially those happy hour events that have no structure. I'm good at networking with my peers, people who are in the same type of business I'm in. I'm not so good at networking with potential clients or customers. Networking has gotten easier for me over the years, but I still feel like it's a necessary evil rather than something I enjoy. I hate networking. Do you hear echoes of your own experience in their words? Just as we reframed fear in Chapter 2, here we're going to reframe networking in such a way that you feel more comfortable inviting more of it into your business development activities. After all, your business, regardless of whether it's Internet, service, or product-based, depends on you pounding the pavement, knocking on doors, seeing, and being seen. But before we get into the details, let's look at why networking is such a hot topic for introvert entrepreneurs. Networking, a hell of our own making? An introvert's natural habitat is one of quiet and solitude or with smaller groups of people. We feel most comfortable and relaxed in an environment that allows space to think, to have meaningful conversations, and to control how much stimulation is coming our way. For most introverts, networking represents the complete opposite of our natural habitat. Networking events are often noisy, random, and awkward. At least, they can feel that way if we're nervous or uncertain about how to make ourselves comfortable in an overwhelming environment. What are the biggest obstacles that get in the way of introvert entrepreneurs being effective networkers? The answer is in the stories and beliefs that we have about networking, that it's about selling, and that it's full of awkward, what do I do now moments, meeting lots of people, uncomfortable small talk, and judgmental strangers. Of course, not every networking event is the introvert's definition of hell. There are times when the hell is of our own making because we decide that it's going to be awful or stressful. We might concoct untrue stories in our heads about being an introvert and therefore being socially awkward, shy, unmemorable, or otherwise inadequate when it comes to small talk. The event itself might be pleasant and, dare I say it, even fun, but we close ourselves down to those possibilities because we've decided in advance that networking is to be endured not enjoyed. Successful networking depends on creating new stories and beliefs that increase our capacity for this important business development activity. The experience will always be what we make of it. This chapter will show you how to reframe networking from something exhausting and unnerving to something productive and energizing. What I learned from getting nudged out of the car by my introverted husband. My husband, Andy, taught me one of the most important lessons I'll ever learn about networking. It was while I was in my first job for a very small nonprofit dance company in Milwaukee. My recently obtained master's degree prepared me for the technical tasks that had to be done. Marketing, fundraising, negotiating contracts, and managing a budget. But I was not prepared for the people side of things, and specifically for networking. Andy, also an introvert, 
had the very unintroverted job of public relations director at a large arts nonprofit organization. He had to know how to connect with a wide range of people, from donors to musicians to media. That meant that networking and going to lots of events was important to his work. And because I was married to him, that meant it was important to me, too. One rainy winter night, he had to make an appearance at an event held by a colleague's agency to celebrate an award they had received. The venue was a bar and would, I was sure, be full of people talking too loudly and standing too closely together. So I sat in the car and whined to Andy. I don't want to go in. I don't know anyone in there. It's going to be loud, and I'm too tired. I'm sure my voice made it clear that if he made me get out of that car, I was going to make him miserable. His reply got me out of the car that night and still gets me out of the car even today. He said, It's true. You might not know anyone in there. But you might be surprised. And each time you go to one of these events, you'll see one or two or three more people that you know. One day, you'll walk into the room and know half the crowd. That takes time, and you have to start showing up now if that's ever going to happen. Even 16 years later, I remember and treasure his simple advice. I appreciate it even more now, knowing Andy better and understanding how it's sometimes an effort for him to work up the energy and enthusiasm for yet one more meet and greet. But you would never know it seeing him in action. Some of the things my introvert spouse does that make him successful. He knows how to connect with people in a way that doesn't completely exhaust him. He focuses on one person at a time. He steps off to the side of the crowd so he can hear better. He asks lots of questions so that the spotlight is on the other person. Watching him, it's clear that being comfortable with networking is not something you have to be born with. It's something you can cultivate. If you have to network anyway, you might as well find a way to make it less painful and more profitable. 80% of success is showing up. When I first heard the Woody Allen quote that heads this section, I thought of it in the traditional sense. Showing up meant going to the meeting, the party, the networking luncheon, even when I didn't feel like it. There were days when I definitely felt like my introvert energy was pulling at me to stay in my office, behind the computer, so I could type instead of talk. On those days, networking was a should and a have-to activity. And even if I showed up physically, I would be in another place mentally, usually imagining my happy place, someplace quiet and alone. Those early weeks of opening my business involved lots of blissful alone time as I worked on my website and materials and strategy. But it wasn't long before I realized that showing up was going to be the foundation of my marketing strategy. There was no way I was going to be able to build a successful business just by sitting behind my computer and sending emails. Because my traditional view of networking was not only energetically draining, but also time-consuming, I was going to have to employ different strategies to make connections with people beyond gritting my teeth and physically showing up. It was the only way I could both grow my business and protect my introvert energy. Who are you? Before we get to those strategies, however, pull out your notes from the company and culture section of Chapter 3. If you formulate the intention that you're going to show up more often in more places, ask yourself, who am I showing up as? Think about your personal presence and what attracts clients and customers to you. As a coach, I show up with a coaching presence, attentive, curious, and non-judgmental, which I mix with my personal introverted style of being generally calm and listening more than I talk. What is your presence? Are you playful, high energy, intense, curious, reassuring, provocative? And how does that presence align with what your current and potential clients expect of you? Showing up as your most genuine you, with the energy and passion you bring to your work, goes deeper than simply walking the talk. It's the edge that allows you, the introvert, to stand out in an extroverted crowd. The Fine Art of Showing Up Introvert Style By deciding to experiment and expand my rather strict definition of networking, I discovered four distinct strategies that work with the strengths of introvert entrepreneurs. They are showing up to people, through people, 
for people, and for yourself. You can apply these strategies anytime, anywhere. Showing up to people. This is perhaps the most obvious of the showing up opportunities. It means to be completely present, physically, emotionally, mentally, to others. You give the situation your full attention and energy. Remember that no matter where you are showing up, you are representing your business. Are you showing up in a way that reflects your values and attitudes about success and client service? What's your intention when you enter a room of people? For me, the question is, what do I have to offer here, rather than, what will I get out of this? This mindset allows me to receive ideas and opportunities that might otherwise have been filtered out. It also opens up more referral possibilities. Sometimes nervousness or anxiety can kick in, and we become the opposite of introverted. We chatter and say things we wouldn't normally say, especially if we place an expectation on ourselves that we're going to get business at a networking event. Matt Youngquist of Career Horizons offers this piece of advice to introvert entrepreneurs who have a tendency to put pressure on themselves to be assertive with their sales agenda. He says, One key mistake that many people make when it comes to networking is to ask too much too soon of a new acquaintance. If the intention of your networking is to prospect for new clients, it's poor form to directly ask a new acquaintance for personal referrals. Youngquist goes on to say, in most cases, such an ask is going to be too aggressive before a sufficient amount of mutual trust has been established. Youngquist's advice relieves us of the often self-imposed pressure to sell and reminds us that it's more important to be clear on who we want to connect with. What an enterprising entrepreneur can do is clearly describe the types of individuals they're most hoping to meet. For example, venture capitalists, social media experts, people working within a given industry, etc. And leave it in the hands of the new acquaintance to volunteer some potential referrals, if they're comfortable doing so. In-person networking is the most energetically demanding strategy for the typical introvert. It requires a projection of energy that is much more physical and active than, for example, when we're connecting with people online. It's also potentially more draining because we are absorbing and reflecting other people's energy. Therefore, we need to thoughtfully plan and prepare ourselves for events. This might mean you schedule only one event in a day or week. If you have more than one in a day, you can choose to leave plenty of buffer time between events so that you're not rushing from one to another. You can also practice the buddy system, enlisting a friend or colleague to attend with you, and thereby relieving some of the anxiety of not knowing anyone. How do you use your social media networks? Social media is one of the introvert entrepreneur's best tools, allowing us to pace our interaction and be especially thoughtful about how we present ourselves. Think about how you can show up authentically through your blog, website, email, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and all of the other ways you are connected to friends, colleagues, and prospects. Here's an example of how this has worked for me. I received an email from a friend I'd not spoken to in a while. She remarked that she'd always been tempted by my invitations and had decided to take action and contact me about coaching. Because I'd taken care to use my online presence as an extension of how I physically show up as coach, this friend saw me sharing wins and opportunities as an invitation to learn more, not as a sales pitch. Showing up through people. During the year I trained to become a coach, I was out of town for one of my weekend classes. When I returned, I hadn't been home 10 minutes before my husband, Andy, told me that he'd reconnected with a childhood friend in Minnesota who was interested in becoming a coaching client. Two things led to it. First, Andy's sister knew what I was doing and told this friend. Then the friend talked to Andy, and he also mentioned it. Without me needing to be present, two people promoted my services, and a client was born. This is one of the best ways to expand your reach while still preserving your energy. Find those people who are your biggest cheerleaders and advocates. They could be family members, friends, teachers, mentors, and professional colleagues. Reach out intentionally, in person if you can, or via Skype, VoIP, or phone if distance is a challenge. At the most basic level, you'll want to learn more about each other's businesses and needs so that you can extend your reach to more people. This process is about cultivating a group of mutual champions. 
Each person in the relationship is actively seeking opportunities to promote the other. In order to do that, you need to know the basics of each other's services, exchange a small stack of business cards, and make it easy to talk about each other. This requires being confident with your elevator pitch, which we'll cover in a few more pages. Share what you're both looking for in a client or project. One of my mutual champions is a personal organizer who works with women going through life transitions. If I encounter someone who would be an ideal client, I'm confidently able to refer her to my colleague. As she crosses paths with entrepreneurs who are introverts and want to build sustainable businesses, she mentions my name. The goal is to create a true win-win situation, and in time, the relationship may extend beyond referrals. You may find that you have enough synergy with your mutual champion that it evolves into a formal collaboration or partnership down the road. Remember your former satisfied customers and clients in this equation and stay in touch as your business grows and changes. Their testimonials, success stories, and referrals are the ultimate in showing up through others. It's easiest to ask for these things while the client or customer is still with you because he's probably feeling positive about you and your offerings. It takes more energy for anyone, but especially the introvert, to reach out after the relationship is over because we can experience that anxiety of bothering someone or wondering if he's going to remember our working relationship fondly or remember it at all. You can avoid the extra work after the fact by identifying where in the cycle of your client or customer relationship it makes sense to ask for a referral or testimonial. For service-based businesses, where a client is with you over a period of time, such as coaches, consultants, massage therapists, trainers, financial and legal services, incorporate a process check or other touch-base opportunity at a set point in the relationship. Ask how she's finding the service, if she has any suggestions, and would she recommend you to a friend? Go an extra step and ask, how can I make it easy for you to tell others about my services? A certificate for a free session or a consultation to pass along? A few business cards? Some brochures? A blog or an e-newsletter to share online? Most people enjoy being asked for their opinion and sharing resources with others, so capture the opportunity while that person is still a client. If your business is product-based, you could create an in-store or online customer satisfaction survey and include the survey URL with an incentive, such as a discount on a future purchase, on their receipt. More personal, high-touch purchases could be followed up with a quick phone call or email, asking about the customer's experience and suggesting that they share their experience with others, assuming it was positive. Make this easy for yourself by writing a short phone script or an email template so that you can make the follow-up as efficient as possible. Turn it into a routine. There's no need to reinvent the wheel every time you solicit feedback. Keep it short, simple, and direct. And try setting aside a block of time dedicated to this type of follow-up. It's often more productive and less energetically draining to make five calls in a row and be done with it rather than spread them out through the day or week and have them nick away at your time and energy. Showing up for people. As a successful professional, you recognize that showing up for other people creates community and shared prosperity. It extends your network in unexpected ways, and you have the potential to learn something new from everyone you meet. One of the ways we show up for others is when we attend a workshop or event they are hosting. When I hosted my first teleclass, several other coaches participated in support of my new endeavor. I can't tell you how wonderful that felt. I've since tried to return the favor to my colleagues as my time and energy allows. By engaging with other entrepreneurs in this way, you're establishing stronger relationships and making it easier to reach out for assistance when you need it. It's also an easy way for the introvert to make meaningful connections with only minimal energetic output. This is especially true when the events are virtual or over the phone. Other ways to show up in support of others include send a handwritten thank you note when someone gives you a referral, testimonial, or useful resource. Write a comment on a colleague's blog, reciprocate a link, retweet, or offer a thoughtful reply on a social media post. Take a moment to write a compliment or provide an endorsement on someone's social media profile. If the person is an author, write a book review, whether it's on Amazon or Goodreads, or as a blog post. 
Joining an entrepreneur network was one of the best things I did when I started my business. The group had a wonderful philosophy of collaboration, not competition. Their consciously cultivated sense of, we're all in this together, helped me notice when I was being competitive rather than collaborative. As a result, I came to realize that my competitive attitude arose from a scarcity mentality. I was seeing things through a lens that told me there was only so much to go around. Finite resources, clients, projects, and opportunities. I noticed it most when I'd go to an event and be surrounded by more experienced coaches. It was challenging to look at them and think, someday that will be me. Instead, I thought, I'm not at their level. It was deja vu all over again because I had those same thoughts when I started graduate school. I perceived my peers as more talented musicians than me from day one. This led to a slow, downward spiral of self-sabotage as I kept telling myself stories about not belonging or being good enough. While I personally grew by leaps and bounds during those years and choose to view that period with no regrets, I sometimes wonder how the outcome might have been different had I not been coming from a scarcity mentality. A me-versus-them mindset also emerged when I saw those who were more outgoing as having an advantage. Because I was judging my energy against those who showed up more extroverted than me, I thought my piece of the pie was even smaller. If it's not caught quickly, that mindset can lead to isolation and fear, two deal-breakers for any introvert entrepreneur. Lastly, there's an element to showing up for others that involves success by association. The more you're around the people who have done the things you want to do, for instance, write a book, host successful workshops, give keynote speeches, the more normalized such activities become. Your support of their success means you have increased opportunities to learn from them and view them as role models or mentors. And if you've reached the success that others crave, be there for people who want to be encouraged and reminded that the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Showing up for yourself. This above all, to thine own self be true. Doesn't that sound like an introvert's modus operandi? These words of Shakespeare's Polonius in Hamlet are simple enough, yet the implications are profound. Tending to your own needs first is among the most important pieces of showing up that you can do. With entrepreneurship, the line between the personal and professional is thin and fuzzy and sometimes non-existent. If we're not taking care of ourselves and taking time to restore our energy, we're not going to be fully available for our businesses. So often I hear someone say, I just don't have time for myself. It's impossible to make that happen. My empathetic but firm response, you can always make time. It's not about finding the time. It's about deciding that it's a priority. You're letting your feelings of guilt or a fear of neglecting others override your natural instinct to take time for yourself. Deciding to show up for yourself can take several forms. It may mean scheduling your days in a way that reflects your natural rhythm and energy. Perhaps it's taking time for a nap or being selective about whether you meet someone in person or schedule a phone call, or saying no to the fourth evening event in the same week. Practice giving yourself what you need in small things, such as staying home instead of going to the movies, so you can read or exercise. Then when it's time to make decisions about the bigger things, such as choosing to lease an office instead of working from home, you'll be more comfortable with it and less likely to feel pangs of guilt or second-guessing. Think about what values are most important to you and how you are turning those values into actions. Staying true to your core and practicing meaningful self-care means you will have more energy for all of the other showing up you want to do. Now that we've explored different ways of showing up in support of you, your goals, and your business, let's look at three additional considerations for successful networking. How to use your introvert energy to your advantage, expanding your definition of networking to include multiple approaches, practical steps you can take before, during, and after networking to both protect and leverage your introvert energy. Use your introvert energy to your advantage. Introverts seldom realize that they have an advantage when it comes to networking situations. 
This is primarily because they think of it as an outgoing social activity that has the high potential to lead to a mental meltdown. To compensate, introverts are sometimes tempted to try to be an extrovert in these more out-there functions. Instead, I encourage people to tap into the part of them that is naturally extroverted and to meld it with their introverted need to listen, observe, and internalize. By understanding what natural strengths you possess, you can transform what could be a highly stressful experience into one that provides you with vital connections and information. Here are some traits that come so naturally to most introverts, we might not realize that they are networking gold. Listening. Introverts often like to listen more than we like to talk. That's one of the reasons why we get the quiet or shy label, because we're not as vocal as our extroverted counterparts. So rather than force yourself to talk more, relax into listening more. Allow the other person to carry the conversation. Listen fully without thinking ahead to what you're going to say when he stops talking. Trust that when there's an opening in the conversation, you'll know what to say or ask. It's usually a matter of picking up a word or phrase he said or reflecting back to the speaker with a statement such as, it sounds like you, which shows you heard what he said and that you were interested and want to hear more. Curiosity. Because of the aforementioned preference for listening over talking, introverts often have a finely tuned curiosity. We'd rather ask questions and shine the light on someone else other than ourselves. To make the most of this, have a few stock questions ready in advance that you can pull out at opportune times. For example, you can ask, have you been to one of these events before? What do you enjoy most about these gatherings? Have you heard this speaker before? How did you get started in your business? What goals or opportunities are you most excited about this year? And one of my favorite questions, which takes a little courage but is worth the risk, what's making you happy today? Think about questions that are positive, easy, and friendly without being too personal. More questions will come to you as you talk with someone. And here is another key to being more comfortable in networking conversations. Be prepared to answer these same questions yourself. Chances are the person you're talking to will turn the tables on your questions and say, what about you? Avoid the deer in the headlights moment by knowing how you'd respond to your own questions. Observation. Look around the room and more closely at the person you're talking to. There are dozens of clues in your environment that light the way toward easier and more natural conversation. This can range from talking about the space itself, if you happen to be in an interesting venue, to the person's tie, scarf, or jewelry. Notice little things that provide insights into the other person's interests or personality. Sometimes we're given a gift. She's wearing a necklace with a tennis racket pendant, or he's sporting a rotary club pin. These are obvious openings for questions. Don't worry if you're not a tennis player or a Rotarian. People who wear their interests on their sleeve, literally, are often happy to chat about their involvement and answer questions. Other times, the lead-in may not be so obvious. That's when you can look for anything about the event or gathering that's unusual or worthy of comment. Another way to use your powers of observation is to notice if there are other people who look like they're new to the group, uncomfortable, unable to break into group conversations, or just hanging back and watching. They may be shy or not sure how to approach the situation. Imagine if that person were you. What would you want someone to say to you? How would you want to be brought into the conversation? If someone takes the time and trouble to come to an event where he's expected to mingle and reach out to people, it's safe to say that giving him a helping hand would be appreciated. Consider how you'd feel in the same situation and graciously invite the person into the conversation. He will probably be relieved and grateful for the lifeline you've tossed him, and you'll feel more relaxed because you've helped there be one less anxious person in the room. Quality over quantity. Building a networking strategy on the premise of the more the merrier doesn't necessarily resonate with the introvert entrepreneur approach. Most anything written about networking says the same thing. It's about making meaningful connections, not collecting a stack of business cards that you can stuff in a drawer at the end of the day. However, there are still people who consider networking a numbers game. 
They believe that the more people you meet, the more you increase your chances of meeting the person who will lead to a breakthrough of some kind. Perhaps there is some truth to that. If you cast your net a bit wider, you are more likely to encounter someone who will impact your life or business. But let that guide what types of events you choose to attend, not how many. Introverts have a tendency to enjoy having a few relationships of depth and substance rather than many superficial ones that scatter our attention. Knowing that, choose your associations based on their fit with your goals, values, and ideal market. If you want to join a networking group, visit several before you decide which one to commit to. Talk to members to find out what they like most about the group and what value they're experiencing. If you feel aligned with the group's vitality and purpose, it won't matter if there are 5, 50, or 500 people in the group. That alignment will boost your energy rather than drain it. Even so, consider going to two highly strategic events each month rather than wearing yourself out by going to a dozen general networking activities. When you get there, focus on one-on-one -on -one conversations and making solid connections with two or three people. You'll preserve your energy, feel more positive about the experience, and walk away with more promising leads. Some Enchanted Networking Guy Kawasaki, who happens to be an introvert entrepreneur, wrote a book called Enchantment that's, well, enchanting. He defines enchantment as filling others with great delight. Consider that and look back on what we just covered as introvert strengths. Listening, curiosity, observation, quality over quantity. There are few things more enchanting than someone who is embodying those four strengths. Put yourself in the position of someone who is benefiting from an intentionally enchanting person. That person is actively, deeply listening to what you have to say. He's genuinely curious and asking you easy questions. He's noticing things that make this experience much more interesting. And he's just talking to you, not letting his attention wander to the 100 other people in the room. He seems sincerely invested in your conversation and making a true connection. Imagine, if someone embodied those strengths, those enchanting behaviors, you'd think he were a networking superstar, wouldn't you? That's what you, as an introvert entrepreneur, have the potential to do every time you meet someone new. Everyday Networking Opportunities for Introverts So far, we've mainly been talking about formal networking events that you attend for the explicit purpose of networking with your peers and prospects. Now let's expand our definition of networking to include any activity that puts you in front of people with the possibility of talking about your business or learning about others. In this new definition, every time you step out your front door, there's a networking opportunity just waiting to happen. Don't let this definition give you more excuses to stay home. It's simply a reminder that sometimes the most powerful connections happen when we least expect them. Entrepreneurs who love their business are always ready to share their passion, even if the setting is not one in which they'd expect to talk about their work. Speaking from your heart and your passion helps you move through the more introverted tendency to keep to ourselves and not initiate conversation. With practice, you will start to see small, everyday opportunities for sharing your message in casual conversation. Career coach Matt Youngquist notes that people's mistaken assumptions often blind them to opportunities for making good business contacts. A huge roadblock in some people's networking efforts relates to their mistaken belief that they can reliably predict who can help them and who can't in reaching their goals. I routinely meet people who only network with people in their own industry, for example, or who marginalize the potential usefulness of neighbors, church acquaintances, gym buddies, hobby group members, and other categories of people they have in their social circles. It's easy to fall into the habit of networking only with peers or friends. It's comfortable and safe. And it limits the number of people who can potentially support you. As the saying goes, it's often the last key that opens the lock. Sometimes it's the person you least expect that will lead you to a new opportunity. As you look to expand your circle of acquaintances, it's helpful to be clear about what types of networking situations you enjoy and are most productive for you. 
Most introverts don't like happy hour or unstructured networking events. Consider that networking can happen anywhere, such as at a lecture, book signing, workshop, presentation, or retreat. I like workshops because it's a mix of like-minded people and potential clients and collaborators. There's also a focus, so there's a natural topic for conversation. Here's a short list of ways we can meet others who may end up being pivotal to our success. Attend professional meetings, conferences, and conventions. Participate in workshops, lectures, or book discussions. Get involved with political or religious groups. Visit with other parents during your child's extracurricular activities. Volunteer for causes you care about in your community. Form or join a meetup group. Try meetup.com. Visit with other people who share your hobbies or interests. Talk with your neighbors. Strike up a conversation with someone while waiting at the doctor's office, in the checkout line, or while you're getting your hair cut. Search out friends, current as well as former, on Facebook and Twitter. Connect with current, former, and potential colleagues on LinkedIn. Share an interesting article or resource with a colleague. Reconnect with former teachers and classmates. Meet someone for an informational interview. What else would you add to this list? Consider your daily routine and places where you have casual opportunities to engage with people. Opportunities for making connections are crossing your path every day. Where you are now, where you want to be. In addition to where you network, consider who might be there when you show up. Seek networking opportunities that put you in contact with people who are doing what you want to do, rather than always being around people who are in the same position you are. For example, other inexperienced or new entrepreneurs, people who provide the same products or services, or people who are struggling. Be intentional about expanding your circle to include those who are a few steps ahead of you or who have already accomplished what you want to accomplish. Writing a book, having a six- or seven-figure business, working with a national clientele, setting up multiple locations, etc. There is value in networking with other entrepreneurs who are in the same business development phase as you, especially in the early years. In these groups, you are reassured that you are not alone in your anxieties, insecurities, and questions. And you can commiserate and brainstorm together about possible solutions. However, make sure you don't get stuck there, networking only with people who are like you. It's important to show up in places where your ideal clients or customers hang out. Notice when you're spending more time with your peers than with your prospects and find ways to stretch into new networking territory, strategically, of course. Effective networking introvert style. Now that we've looked at the big picture and expanded our definition of networking, let's turn to actionable tips and tricks that will help you reframe networking forever. We're going to examine the art of networking through an introvert entrepreneur lens, looking at what you can do to both protect and project your energy before, during, and after the event. Before the event. Miguel de Cervantes says, to be prepared is half the victory. In general, introverts like to prepare. It takes less energy to walk into a room prepared than it does to wing it. Respect the desire to be prepared by taking steps to gather information and do your homework before the event starts. First and foremost, whether or not you're good at networking starts in your head. It's a frame of mind. Depending on your previous experiences, you may have the idea that you're not good at small talk, you don't like talking to strangers, and you won't know what to say when you do end up talking to them. You may also have a general, I don't like networking attitude. One way or another, all of these attitudes will come through in how you present yourself, even if you don't tell a soul how uncomfortable you are. This is why it's important to reframe your beliefs about networking. Reframing something does not mean denying it. Instead, reframing means putting a different perspective on the thought so that you can work from love instead of fear. This is something you'll hear from me time and again in this audiobook, because approaching our work from fear rather than love is at the root of so many of our challenges. When we come from a place of love, there's no room left for fear to have any power. 
When we're trying to shift how we think about something, it helps to acknowledge through our affirmations that we are at the beginning of our journey. If we feel insecure, yet tell ourselves, I'm a rock star networker, I love meeting strangers, our introvert brain is going to reject these thoughts as lies. The most effective affirmations use words and phrases that acknowledge that change is a process. Saying, I am beginning and I am becoming, a tip I picked up from motivational speaker Andy Dooley, is much easier for your brain to believe. Here are a few affirmations that have worked for me and my clients. By relaxing and letting my personality shine, I am becoming more comfortable with talking to new people. I welcome the opportunity to learn more about others while sharing the wonderful gifts that I have to offer. I am ready for the new connections that come when I show up from a place of curiosity, gratitude, and authenticity. I am beginning to appreciate my quiet energy and how it helps me connect with others. I invite you to use these or make up your own. The important thing is that you find a way to remind yourself of the unique and fabulous strengths you bring to the table. One of my favorite affirmations comes from the book Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway by Susan Jeffers. She tells us to remember, I can handle whatever happens. One of our biggest fears is that we won't be able to handle or deal with something. In truth, we can handle anything, and you can handle any networking situation. Here are some additional ways you can prepare yourself in advance for a positive networking experience. Set an intention. What do you want to learn? What experience do you want to have? Do you want to make a particular connection with someone? Do you want to practice talking comfortably about your business? Think of intentions that are focused, reasonable, and stretch your skill set. Consider these examples. I want to meet three new people and learn about their business. I want to feel calm and centered during the event. I want to practice asking questions rather than talking only about me. I intend to greet everyone with a smile and a confident handshake. I intend to learn how I can help or provide resources to two other people. Pre-care yourself. If you need to prepare by making sure you have some alone time, a nap, or some exercise, make those activities a priority. Do what you know builds up your energy. Leave yourself time in your schedule before and after the event to recharge and relax. Think twice before agreeing to carpool with someone or meet for coffee before or after the event. It may be that those interactions serve as a warm-up or priming the pump before you have to walk into a room full of strangers. It may also be that you need that time to be spent quietly to clear your mind and shore up your energy. Say yes to those types of invitations only if you really mean it. All of this planning is a way of taking care of yourself or pre-caring in advance. Do a little online stalking, um, I mean research. We have a treasure trove of mobile information at our fingertips, often right in our purse or pocket. I highly recommend tapping into it in advance of any event or meeting you're attending. If there's someone you're interested in meeting, visit her website, check out her social media profiles, and even read a few blog posts or articles to get a stronger sense of who she is. Use web-based information to build a bridge between online and offline. Have a short introduction prepared. For this bit of networking preparation, I have found inspiration in Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why, How Great Leaders Inspire Everyone to Take Action. He discovered that there's a communication pattern that leads to greatness, which he calls the golden circle. He posits that the reason we have trouble connecting with and influencing people is because we take too long to get to the heart of why we do what we do. We focus on telling people what we do, which is often followed by sharing how we do it. And in most cases, we never get to the why at all. According to Sinek, People don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. I find this viewpoint particularly resonant for introverts because we are generally more focused on the inner world of ideas and images, whereas extroverts tend to spend more time on the outer world of people and things. Every business was sparked by an idea, a why, yet we sometimes lose our connection with that spark when we get caught up in the how and what the outward manifestations of the business. 
The Golden Circle framework helps us describe what we do, starting with the why, then moving to the how and what, and serves to take the focus off of us as individuals and even off of the goods and services. Instead, it rekindles our relationship with our inspired idea and initial passion. Cynic proposes that we consider three important questions, asked and answered in this order. Why do you do what you do? I believe. Start off by sharing why you do what you do. Focus on what inspires you and what gives you the energy to keep on going when others may have quit. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. We'll be really thankful if you support us by clicking the link in the description so that we continue to create amazing content for you.